We're in Acts chapter 2, and actually what I'm going to do today is read these two passages at the end of Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, put them together and kind of think about them together because they are summaries of the life that the community had in those first days after Pentecost. It's an amazing story about the birth of the church and how it affected people. So that's what we're going to talk about today. I think it's important because everybody has relationships. And here we see some powerful relationships. So pay attention as we read through the scriptures and then as we think about why we have a church and what it means for believers to be of one mind and heart, all believers together. Verse 42 of Acts chapter 2 says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. And then it gives us the example of Barnabas, who did just this. They were all of one mind and heart. All the believers were together. That's what it says. It's an amazing kind a thing that God did with his early church. Lest you misunderstand, however, just to clarify, togetherness does not mean that everybody in the room has the same opinion about everything. It doesn't mean that you and I agree on everything, that you like everything I do and vice versa. Togetherness doesn't mean there is no conflict, no discussion. No compromise. And certainly togetherness doesn't mean there's no struggle. These people are just like you and me. They have families. They have marriages. They have children and grandchildren. They have people that they worry about. And sometimes relationships are strained. They have financial problems. And sometimes that's an issue for them. They have sicknesses just like us and Age comes upon them as it does upon us and all the aches and pains that come with it. So when we read about the early church, we're not talking about a fellowship that is all in one accord in one place, all of one mind and heart because nobody has any opinions about anything except one opinion. That's just not what togetherness means. Instead, it means that they worked at loving each other, that it was a priority in their lives. We all want a community like this. We want to be part of a group of people 
who journey together, who love one another, who serve each other unselfishly. We don't want to get caught in a time in our life when we have no friends to call upon. Somebody needs to take me to the airport, as is the case right after this service. And I had a list of folks that I called because God has given me friends in this fellowship. And lo and behold, Terry Werlein's going to take me to the airport. And, uh, I mean, we want people to call on, don't we? Wouldn't it be sad to be in a situation where you just think through and think, <laughs> I don't have anybody to call on. There's nobody. We don't want to be there. We want to have these enduring and loving friendships. We want to be part of that kind of community. God wanted us in fellowship with him. He wanted to have a relationship with us. So what did God do? The creator of the world, the lover of our hearts, the supreme lover of the universe, came to Abraham, and to Abraham's surprise, says, I want to be your God, and I want you to be my people. And that encounter produced what we call the Old Testament, the first part of your Bible. In other words, God wanted a relationship with Abraham, and so God entered into a promise with Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham, and Abraham made a promise back. It's called a covenant. And with God, the covenant is sealed with love. When God sent his son Jesus, we got the New Testament, which is the new covenant that God made with us. Now, the thing about this relationship with God is we don't initiate it. It's not our idea. This is the idea of the creator God, the lover of the universe, who says, in order to have a relationship with you, I'm going to make a promise to you, and I want you to promise me back. The relationship of promise is the highest of all human experiences. I know that because God called us in to this relationship. There's nothing that beats this, all right? This is where you want to be, in a relationship of promise, in a covenant community. And so through the generations, brothers and sisters in the body of Christ have made promises to one another. When I was a boy, we had big placards at the front of the church. Do you remember these? And one of them might have like 795 and 462. And you think, okay, that's not how many people are in the building because there's only 100 seats here. Oh, those are the hymn numbers. They used to put the hymn numbers up. Have you ever seen that, where they had the hymn numbers listed? And then there'd be other numbers, and some of these would be big numbers, and they would be like, how much was the offering last week? And then they put up how much the offering was this week. And then they put up how, much, uh, how many people were in Sunday school this week. And so we had these placards. One of the things that frequently they hung in front of the churches is what was titled the church covenant. And the church covenants would vary from one place to another. But I want to read you the first paragraph of a typical church covenant. Having been led as we believe, 
by the Spirit of God to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior and on the profession of our faith, having been baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we do now in the presence of God, angels, and this assembly most solemnly and joyfully enter into covenant with one another as one body in Christ. Now, occasionally, churches have made members sign covenants before they joined. We had someone join in the early service. We're not going to ask Shan to sign a covenant. But there is an implied covenant in the body of believers because the Holy Spirit baptizes you into the body of Christ and he gives spiritual gifts to you that he says are not for your own use, but for the common good in the body. So the truth of the matter is that just as God has made a covenant with us through his son Jesus, so we covenant together, we make promises one to another to be faithful and true, loving and kind, encouraging one another in the body of believers so that the body of Christ may flourish. This is what spontaneously happened. I don't think they had a document in the early church that produced the two passages that we've read. I think instead they had the Spirit of God and the Word of God, and the Word of God and the Spirit of God together produced this covenant community where they cared for each other in this way. Now, there are four things about the covenant community that I want you to see, and I hope they're happening in your life. And the first one is singleness of purpose. To be part of the covenant community, there's a single and solitary purpose that must prevail in your life. These are all believers. All believers work together. These are believers. And this is the singleness of purpose that binds them together. The gospel of Jesus Christ and the glory of God. They are bound together by this purpose. Now, when I was a boy, I wrote a song. I was 16 or 17 years old. I got my guitar sitting on the bed, and I wrote the song, I Want My Life to Count for Jesus. That was a long time ago, and my brothers and I sang it many times. We actually made a recording of it. Yes, I was part of one of those things, okay? <laughs> Long time ago. But I want my life to count for Jesus summarized what I was sensing inside of me as a teenager. And do you know that little phrase, I want my life to count for Jesus, has served me well through all these years. I'd like to know what your single purpose is. What is it? Paul said, this one thing I do, what is it? Somehow or other in the covenant community, it, it, it orbits around Jesus as Savior and Lord. This is what dominates my life. So if you were to say today, what is the passion of your heart, what would it be? Would the name of Jesus be in the passion of your heart? in your single purpose, the most important, the top priority in your life, the thing that dominates all others. That's what's going on in this community. 
okay? And it is apparent in the way they devote themselves. They are devoted to the apostles' teaching. They are committed to learning the teaching of the apostles. The word teaching is the Greek word didache. There was actually a document, most people think it originated in the first century, called didache, and it was the teaching of the apostles. What are the apostles teaching these people? Well, they're teaching them about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and the good news that Jesus saves and forgiveness of sin is found in him. That's what they're teaching them. They're teaching them from the old covenant as well as this new one into which they have entered. We had a wonderful children's musical Sunday night. I know some of you were there. It was glorious, wasn't it? It was just top shelf. It was great, Michelle. And one of the wonderful things about that was those kids were full of Scripture. In fact, week after week on Wednesdays, you were teaching them the apostles' teaching. You are passing it on to them. This is the Didache. So they learned all these verses. They quoted them for us. They sang them for us. That's what the church does. The church gathers around this thing which we believe. You can be part of this family, part of this community, part of this loving service. Enter into this body and be a member. If Jesus dominates your life, if he is Lord in you, Devoted then to the apostles' teaching and devoted to fellowship, which is the wonderful word koinonia. They fellowshiped together. Koinonia is participating in a common possession. They devoted themselves to this fellowship of believers. Now, inside the word fellowship, there is this strand about the covenant. And I will illustrate it for you from Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, all right? Where the Apostle Paul's talking about that rather difficult meeting they had in Jerusalem. And he went, and some folks had come. He calls them false brethren who are preaching a gospel other than the gospel of grace, which Paul preached. He said, if people can be saved by the works of the law, then Christ died for nothing. And he was so insistent on it. And this was the issue at the Jerusalem Council, whether these Gentiles could actually come into fellowship with the church of Jesus Christ and not become Jews. And the apostle says that once they understood that the Spirit of God was upon him, then he names James, Peter, and John came to him and gave him and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. You ever heard that? The right hand of fellowship? How many of you have heard that? All right. It used to be a common phrase in the church. If somebody joins today, we're going to tell you to come by and give them the right hand of fellowship. Okay? That's what Paul said in Galatians chapter 2, 9. Now think about that phrase for a minute. They gave us the right hand of fellowship. See, you ever shook on anything? We come to an agreement, we say, let's shake on it, and we shake. There's a promise in that, there's a covenant in that, right? Well, the right hand of fellowship includes a promise and a covenant. And the apostles are saying to Paul and to Barnabas, you are one with us. This fellowship 
energizes the body of believers. It energizes the church. It is full of God's love and peace and joy, this fellowship that draws us together. They were also breaking bread together. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Most people think that includes communion or the Lord's Supper, which Jesus initiated in a regular meal. And they think probably that they had it in those early days in a regular meal. They'd get together, they'd eat together. We talk about how we like to get together and eat. And we do, all right? I've always enjoyed eating with God's people ever since I was little bitty. And I know you do too. Well, in the, embedded in those big feasts, they would have the Lord's Supper. They changed that later on because it kind of became a problem. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians 11. But here, they are breaking bread together just with sincere hearts, enjoying one another's fellowship. This phrase is used where Jesus breaks the bread with the two on the road to Emmaus, and he is known to them in the breaking of the bread. There is such a fellowship around the table of the Lord. There's something about taking communion, as I've done it through all these years now, that is very precious and dear to me. There's a sense of connection with you, my brothers and sisters in this body, as each of us participate in the wonder of the community that God creates for his church. They were devoted to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now, we already learned that they were continually praying in the upper room. After Jesus ascended, that was just part of it. They had a prayer meeting going on somewhere. They were going around just praying, like some of us do, just walking and praying. And all We're driving and we're praying. We're talking to God. Paul said, pray continually. And I guess in our age, the only way to do that is to be in prayer as you drive. Not distracted. Don't close your eyes. All right? But to just continually be talking to God. Practice that, because they were practicing that, and that's a key part of this community that God was creating. The church community was created in this spirit of prayer. When everybody is praying, there's a focus upon God that enlivens the community of faith. Would you describe yourself as a praying person? Would you say of yourself, I am devoted to prayer? See, if you were not devoted to prayer, then you would not be like these Christians who are described here in these passages. You'd be different than that. There'd be something different about how you handle things. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. In this fellowship, there was an intense sense of God's presence. That's number two. There's an intense sense of God's presence here. They are living in the, just a few days after the resurrection of Jesus. And the story of Jesus' resurrection is being told on a daily basis in the temple courts to anybody that will hear. And they are all talking about it. So that part of it is very clear. That God has done something in human history that nobody heard about before. It's never been done before. A dead man walked out of a grave. Only God could do that. And so they have this great sense of the presence of God in all that they do. It happens to you as you rehearse the truth of the resurrection. 
as you talk to other people about the death and resurrection of Jesus, as you focus on the gospel, it happens to you. It enlivens your spirit. It gives you a sense of God's presence in the here and now. But there's, there's more than, than that. Then they had the coming of the Holy Spirit and their own lives being transformed. So while the apostles are talking about, we were eyewitnesses, we saw the risen Christ, we saw him with our own eyes, we saw that empty tomb. The second generation apostles are talking about, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead, I asked him to save me, and God has transformed my life. So you have this immediate sense of the Spirit's presence, not only in the first generation, but the second generation that has received this transforming power. Of God and God is daily doing his work in them they are daily experiencing the body of Christ every day there has to be some kind of discipline where where on a daily basis you are connecting up with a father above you are connecting to his people the church you are connecting to his word you are in prayer this is the context of this wonderful community that was birthed in these early days and all of that is available to us as we center our lives in the gospel and in the work of the Spirit and what He wants to do in us. This intense sense of God's presence is necessary to have this kind of community. Henry Blackaby wrote that now famous work, Experiencing God. How do I experience God? He subtitled it, Knowing and Doing the Will of of God knowing and doing the will of God is how you experience God you experience him as you follow his command as you share the good news this intense sense of the presence of God needs to be practiced so that we are deliberately and on purpose setting markers in our life where we remind ourselves God is with me and I'm going to trust him. And I know I've got this big challenge, but I'm not by myself. God is with me. So they had this singleness of focus and this intense sense of God's presence. And every one of them, too, had a costly investment of resources in this community. You think about what you've just read. Some of you heard these texts and you thought, wonder if they were communists. You know, all of them putting their... I don't think so. I think it's... What, what happened here is that God moved in their heart to sell a piece of land like Barnabas did. It wasn't all the land he had. I know a... I knew a, a man who had a whole bunch of children, 14 children. His name was Alan Bear. And when I was a boy, he joined our church in Holly, Minnesota. He came to us from a Christian commune. He had sold everything and gave it to the commune. He got tired of the commune because Alan Bear was a fierce worker. And all his kids were too. And he thought the people in the commune weren't keeping their part of the bargain. So eventually, having given them everything he had, he left the commune. But don't worry about Alan Bear and his family. Alan's gone on to be with the Lord, but his family, they have done great. All right? They've worked hard, and God has blessed them, and Alan and his wife finally moved to Hawaii, and that's where they lived out their lives, okay? It wasn't, I don't think it was the kind of commune you think about 
uh, when you read this passage. I think it was more God moving on their heart as in times and places to give not only the interest, but also the principle. To give something that really went deep. You say, I wish my small group had that kind of community where we really journeyed together and spent life together and loved one another in this selfless service that is evident here. Well, who in your small group is willing to invest so that that may happen? I guarantee you the best experience you'll ever have in Christian community, you will think about somebody, a couple, or a single who said, my house is your house. And because they were willing to let their house be your house, it changed your life. It changed your life. And you experienced in their home the depth of Christian fellowship that you never knew before. And the reason it happened is because somebody just took their house and said, this is God's house and you can come here. Somebody made space for you. Somebody made sure that the meal was ready. Somebody prepared to lead the discussion. Somebody took the responsibility of organizing prayer for that group. I mean, folks have to invest. Brothers and sisters, let's invest like this, okay? Let's invest like this. Let's invest our time and our talent and our resources like this. Do you want to see transformed living? Do you want to experience Christian community? Then you invest what God calls you to give. You use your gifts where they fit in that family that you want to be part of. You connect to those people, and one day you'll look around and you'll see, I got lots of friends who love me. I could call them anytime. And you know why? Because we made an investment in their lives. That's why. That's part of being a member of this kind of miraculous community of believers where folks really love one another and care for each other. Costly investment. One other thing is happening that you've got to see. It is the powerful witness to the resurrection of Jesus. The apostles are giving it. They are preaching it in the temple square. They are going forth with this. The gospel remains central. You see, the singleness of focus turns into a proclamation day after day. They want people to know about what Jesus has done for them. When they open their mouths to witness, there is a transforming power of the Holy Spirit in that place. God changes lives, and the continuing work of the Spirit continues as they, as they give their witness to the resurrection of Jesus. God wants to do that in you. He wants to use you to take the good news to people around you that need him. The koinonia that the church experiences must always be an open koinonia. I know that's hard to think about because we love our four and no more. And if we add two to the four, then the group changes, the dynamic changes, and we like it the way it is. But if it's going to be like the New Testament, if it's going to be this miraculous community that you read about here, it's going to be the kind of community that you long for, it's got to have an open door to it. It's got to. It's got to have room for the guy who says, I need Jesus too. Will you come on in?
and be part of our group. And we'll love you and care for you and help you understand the gospel. That has to be there. If that's not there, there's something that's left out of the community that you see here. God was adding to this church daily those who were being saved. I got my report from the Juvenile Detention Center this week and learned that Rajay had come into the detention center some months ago and they found her to be, the folks that go there, just very combative, confrontational, and uncooperative as a person. They kept coming back until she received the good news of Jesus Christ and was transformed. She left. But they said this week she came back for some appointment or, or court date that she had, and she was a transformed. That's what the language they used. She is a transformed person, they said. And she was actually the peacemaker on that cell block. I had no more told that story that one of our other ministers that goes to the prison came down and said, I just want to tell you that Alyssa at the Orleans Parish Jail, she trusted Jesus too, and her life is transformed in the same way. And so one after the other, we discovered that God not only raised Jesus from the dead, but he quickens dead people now and makes them alive in him and changes their life. Do you believe this? Do you believe that the good news of Jesus can transform your neighbor and your relatives and your friends? Do you believe this? Because if you believe this, amen, we believe it. Lord, we believe it. Hear your church, okay? Then Lord, use us as agents of transformation. You can't really enjoy this kind of community if you're not a believer. It starts there. So I ask you, are you a believer? I was in one of the small groups just a minute ago, and JP led in prayer, and he said, it's great to be in fellowship with other believers. We love having you here if you're not a believer. I want you to keep coming. This is an open fellowship, okay? But you can't experience what they experience in Acts chapter 2 and 4 unless and until you yourself are a believer in Jesus as Savior and Lord. Now, the word believer has faith in it. It's a faither. Believing is faithing. And faith is trusting God and entrusting yourself to God. So faith is trusting and entrusting, and that's what believers do. They trust in God and they entrust themselves to God. Are you a believer? If not, why not? The scripture says that God gives the gift of faith. So I know I'm looking out upon people who have some measure of faith. Not everybody has the same measure, perhaps, but God gives his faith. And the Holy Spirit touches our hearts and we respond to the gospel. If you have never responded in faith, saying, Lord, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sin and rose again from the dead. And I ask that my sins be forgiven and that Christ be my Lord and Savior. 
you've never received Christ, you can do it today. Bow with me, please. As we bow our heads, if you've not ever had that moment when you committed your life to Christ, why not right now? Just say, Lord, I need you in my life. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sin and that he rose again from the dead. And I pray that you will forgive me of my sin and come into my life. I receive you as Lord. Just in simple faith, calling out to God for his mercy and grace. Lord, I pray today that by your Holy Spirit you will call people to yourself. Lord, that you'll work the work of transformation in them, just as you did back in these early days. Thank you, God, that you don't leave us the way you find us, but you change us from the people that we are. You make us your own. God, do that today, we pray. I pray for believers that need to pull up close to the church, who need to make a costly investment in the community of faith. Lord, who need to keep the covenant of love that was initiated as they first believed. God, help us be faithful. You are an awesome God. You are faithful to us. Help us be faithful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.